We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Hi, this is Cheryl Broderson. And Jasmine Allnut. And I am so excited to join with you on... Women Worth Knowing. That's right, because I've got... Believe it or not, another doctor. In fact, I've got two doctors. Oh, wow. Yes, oh, my gosh. Just, you know what I mean? You keep unearthing. Right, right. Just <laughs> so when I think I'm done. And I do think this is this is it. And then I think I'm going to move into the mystics with you. Okay. We'll just go down that road. And... I've got a couple. Well, of... we've got those other ones people have been writing in on, oh, like Rosalind so Goforth. Right. And what was the other one? There's these ones that Cheryl's been wanting to do for a long time. So don't worry, guys. They're I've coming. Got, personally, right now, I've got 30 books at home <laughs> of women worth knowing that mm. we have not explored yet. Oh, boy. And uh, I'm not even counting Rosalind Goforth's uh, biography, which I've Read and I absolutely love Rosalind Goforth, <laughs> even though we're not doing her today. No, 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 not yet, not yet. Sorry, that's yeah. <laughs> coming in the future because we're doing a doctor. Yes. So this is um, Dr. Anne Preston, and mm. she was born in 1813, okay. and she was born to a Quaker pastor, Amos Preston, and she was the second child of nine children. Wow. And there were three daughters and six boys, but she was the only girl to live to adulthood. Oh, wow. So her Sad. two little sisters died, hmm. and she lived with um, six brothers. Her mom was Margaret Smith Preston. So who knows? I might even be related. Hey, My name Smith. is Smith. Yes. <laughs> so she went to a Quaker school and then to... Friends, which is a definitely a quicker name, yes. Friends Boarding School in Chester, Pennsylvania. But her education was cut short when her mother got ill, and she had to return to take care of her little brothers. So she went home, but she decided to continue her education by attending lectures at the local literary association and the Lyceum. So the Lyceum was like a it was like a place where people could go and hear lectures by famous people and mm. they could learn. And so even though it wasn't formal learning, she was still, you know. Yeah, you're getting educated through that. Right, educated yeah. and learning. So one of her best friends was Lucretia Mott. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Yes, who was a member of the anti-slavery and the temperance movement. Yeah, and yeah. she really got Anne interested in abolition, the, the abolition cause. And so she took care of her brothers until they were old enough to tend to themselves, and her mother was well. And she became a school teacher. In 1840, she had also begun to teach physiology and hygiene um, to all female classes. Mm -hmm. And what she realized is that women knew so little about the function of their body or mm -hmm. about their own anatomy, the why of, you know, their, you know, uh, creation. And so she mm -hmm. began to teach them uh, the why of their bodies and why their bodies did what they did and why it was so important to keep clean mm -hmm. and to keep their items clean. And this was a time when women were wearing corsets. And she would also teach about how they would actually disfigure women. Mm -hmm. And she would discourage women from wearing corsets and some of the styles that she felt were unhygienic and dangerous. Didn't yes. people break their ribs sometimes yes, with corsets? I mean, that. that's pretty gnarly. Insane. Yeah. Or as you would say, nar-nar. Nar-nar. <laughs> yes. So in 1847, she enrolled to be an apprentice with Dr. Nathaniel R. Mosley. Now, this is a super brave thing for Dr. Mosley to do. 
um, because at that point, men did not take in, um, especially doctors, women. Oh, right. So not to at all. apprentice a woman was very um, kind of edgy, or it was edgy. <laughs> edgy is the best word. So she's by this time though she has put off and put off and put off her education. She's thirty five years old, hmm. and she's just now um, beginning to apprentice and she loved it. She loves looking at the anatomy. She loves the dissection. She loves the surgery. She loves assisting him. At the same time, um, she applies to four different medical colleges in Philadelphia and she's refused by all four. Were they all men's institutions? Mm -hmm. Okay. And so far, the only woman to graduate from the male-dominated colleges was Elizabeth Blackwell, Nancy Clark, and Emily Blackwell, who mm-hmm. graduated from the Cleveland uh, Medical College. So she's really, there's not much she can do. In 1849, though, she wrote her first book, and it was called Cousin Anne's Stories. Um, the subtitle was A Book of Virtuous Stories for Children. And so I have a little sampling because it's so cute. This is the dedication. To my little readers, dear children, I will tell you how I came to think of making this little book. I love children, and it would be pleasant to me to see you and talk with you about many things. It is not very long since I was a little child myself and played Blind Man's Bluff and Frog in the Sea as merrily as any of you. But there are many thousands of you, and I cannot see all your faces and talk with every one of you. So I thought I would write a little book, and that would be a good way to speak with you, though I am far away. I hope you will like it. I shall be pleased if you learn something good and pleasant from it. You will soon be men and women, and I want you to grow wiser and better every day. Then you will be happy, and God will bless you and keep you, Cousin Anne. Cute. That's the introduction. So she taught about... Oh, all sorts of things, all sorts of virtues. But hmm. one of them was abolition, and this was her story, mm. and I'll read it quickly. Come, Lizzie, and I'll tell you that tale of Tommy and Lucy Lee, two little slaves no bigger, dear, than Cousin Charles and thee. They lived in Carolina State beside the great deep sea. Their mother was a weary slave and wanted to be free. She only came to them at dark, for she must work all day. And with her on the cabin floor, they slept the night away. Long sunny days they played alone as little children play, but never hurt the butterflies nor pelted frogs away. Sometimes they rambled in the wood where moss and flowers grew, and little birds sang them to sleep, as birds will often do. But one dark night their mother dear stayed all the night away, and long they cried and waited there until the break of day. And then their master came and bade them to his house repair, for they were old enough, lie said, to earn their victuals there. They met their mother in a drove of slaves upon their way. Her heart was broke, for she was sold to go to Florida. Tom and Lucy gazed on them and cried, My God, she stopped and begged to stay. The driver fiercely called, Move on, and drove her fast away. Through dreary days and dreary years toiled Tom and Lucy there, and when they stopped, the great whip cracked upon their shoulders bare. But though they'd none to pity them, they loved each other well, and love will always bring some joy wherever it may dwell. They said when they grew big and strong, they both would run away, and up in Pennsylvania learned to read and write each day. But once, I think it was a May morn, a stranger came along, while Lucy milked and sadly sung her mother's little song. 
He called her master to the road and told him he would pay $600 for that girl and take her right away. Her master took the trader's gold. Such wicked things they do. Just like a calf was Lucy's soul, though she was good as you. Tom heard her scream and ran to her. To part they could not bear. He held her fast and cursed the men who stood in wonder there. They knocked him down and roughly took poor Lucy far away. And toiling in some cotton field, she weeps perhaps today. Tom ran away, but dogs and men were set upon his track. And brokenhearted from the swamp, they brought him quickly back. And then, twas said, they sold him off, all chained to Georgia men. He may be dead. I never heard from that poor boy again. Come, Lizzie, and I'll tell you the tale of Tom and Lucy Lee. Yeah. Isn't that like, it's so sweet and so mm, poignant. Yeah. So the whole little book, because I actually found the book Ooh. and was able to look on it online. And the stories in her little poems are so good and so poignant. Yeah. So this shows you how committed she was. And she wanted um, little boys and girls to understand that yeah. slavery was wrong yeah. and just how wrong it was. Yeah. And again, she had been teaching for years by this time. And she would have been, you know, in her 30s. Mm-hmm. So she had been rejected from the medical schools, right? yeah, the four, four medical them. schools. Jeez. And so she started writing this book. So at this point in her life, and so, you know, 1849, um, the Quakers of Philadelphia were already contemplating building a medical school for women. And they, you know, oh, yes. we, they were equal opportunity people. And they believed that women could do especially with Elizabeth Blackwell, who had been a Quaker, having an infirmary in New York City. They're thinking, women can be doctors. So they got together and they pooled their money and they opened the first female medical college of Philadelphia in 1850. And while its students were all female, its staff and faculty were all men. Interesting. That is until Dr. Hannah Longshore became the anatomy demonstrator. So I guess that's the anatomy teacher with props. Yeah, you demonstrator. Wow. Okay. Like, <laughs> yeah. What does that mean? I guess I know. cadavers. I guess. Yeah. And, when yeah. I read that, I was like, "What? What's the demonstration mean?" <laughs> and so she started teaching in 1851. Hannah's story is also fascinating. It's very short, but um, she was the first woman to serve on the faculty of a college in the United States. Wow. And she received her medical training from her brother-in-law. And after she became a doctor, her two sisters went on to become doctors also. So she pioneered the way for her sisters, just like Elizabeth yeah, Blackwell. Elizabeth Blackwell did that, yeah. Mm-hmm, pioneered the way for her little sister, Emily, to become a doctor. So Anne graduated from the college in December of 1851, but she remained at the college to take postgraduate study. And she was appointed a teacher of physiology and hygiene in 1853. In 1858, the Philadelphia Medical Society spoke out against the Women's Medical College, and they barred all women graduates from educational clinics. So they couldn't go any further than just that degree that they had gotten at the uh, Female Medical College of Philadelphia. Okay. And so they wouldn't let wow. them intern in the hospitals. They said they could come and intern if they'd be nurses, but they couldn't be doctors. They couldn't practice medicine. They outlawed it. They actually outlawed clinics uh, that were run by women. Wow. And so Dr. Preston, you know, Ann Preston, our friend, organized a group of lady managers at this time, which included wealthy patrons of the college. And 
who believed in the cause of women doctors. So these ladies raised funds to open a Quaker women's hospital uh-huh. where the graduates could train. So these female um, doctors could go in and they could further their education. And there were Quaker uh, men doctors who also agreed to work at this uh, college and to train yeah. these women. Those Quakers. It's the Quakers. <laughs> so the hospital opened in 1861. And the women's hospital accepted its first patient to the line in department maternity, hmm. December 16th, 1861. So that's what the maternity department was called. It was called the line in department. Interesting. So interestingly enough, most women at this time would have their babies at home and the doctor Mm -hmm. would come to their house. So this was mainly um, the immigrants and the very poor that Mm -hmm. were having their children in hospital. It was before it became vogue to have your children in the hospital. And so it was really the poorest of the poor that would come to this women's hospital. So not what we would think. No. By April of 1862, this is exciting, 12 patients occupied beds. The hospital grew steadily By 1875, it housed 37 beds, treated nearly 2,000 patients with visits, home visits, carried out by the students, and saw more than 3,000 visitors in its dispensary. And women and children were admitted without regard to their religious belief, nationality, or color. Doesn't that just sound like the Quakers? Yes, it does. (laughs) But, okay, so that was the hospital. But going back to 1860, what happened in 1860 that was cataclysmic in the United States? Civil War. broke out. Civil War, that's right. And the college, not the hospital, but the college was forced to close for lack of funds. Hmm. So, again, the Quaker women joined forces, and they decided that Anne— needed to further her education. And they sent with her a woman named Emmeline Horton. And Emmeline's story is so exciting. And I'm going to go into that a little bit after this because mm. it's it, it's really it's interesting. A bonus story. Yes, okay. it's a bonus story. So they ended up going to London and Paris to study obstetrics. And they returned in 1863. And Anne set about right away to help the college reopen. And in order to do so, she went door to door and even used her parents' horse and buggy to go out to the neighboring farms and raise support for the college. And then the college was able to reopen in 1862 in the Quaker Hospital. So what it did is it just took some of the rooms at the hospital to to start again. So they started small until Mm. they could get bigger. That's amazing. Right in the middle of the war to be able to raise the funds for that. That's miraculous. Isn't that incredible? (laughs) Unfortunately... Anne's hard efforts, because she's going in the winter months and whenever she can, left her with rheumatism. Mm. And she was forced to recuperate in the hospital, that hospital, Quaker (laughs) Hospital, for three months. And that was really frustrating for her. In 1864, the dean of the college, Edwin Fussell, because remember, mainly it was men who were running this hospital, refused to give a medical degree to one of the students, Mary Putnam Jacoby. He said that she hadn't put in enough time or enough work. Well, this greatly upset the rest of the students and many of the staff members. And it became such an issue at the college. And Dean Fussell refused to back down. Like, well, no. Was no. he right or was she just. Well, Anne Preston felt like he was wrong. Okay. And she was with other women who said, no, she's talented, she's gifted, she's put in all the legwork, and she's a bona fide doctor, and you should acknowledge that. And so he stepped down from the college. And so this left this vacancy 
at the Female Medical College of Philadelphia. And they asked Anne Preston to take the position. Uh This was incredible because it marked the first time a woman was the dean of an American college, let alone a medical college. Wow. And Anne was a visionary. She had so many ideas for this college that were so wise. She wanted the graduates to be able to continue their education, even as she and Emmeline were able to do in London and Paris. So she advocated and petitioned for her students to be able to intern and study at Philadelphia Hospital Blockley. Maybe you remember Blockley. That's where Elizabeth Blackburn, Blackwell Blackwell had been. Remember, it was awful. Oh, yes, 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 yes. So she said, look, I mean, she's not choosing the nicest hospital. She's choosing one of the worst hospitals, but says, you know, I want to. Admirable. So they said, yes, your students can go. Now, when Anne, I mean, when Elizabeth had gone there, she had to serve as a nurse. I don't know if you remember that. And then later, they began to let her do more um, medical things, but she had to just follow the doctors. Mm. So now she's saying, I want our students to go in as doctors and serve and do internship there. So they agreed. But when the girls went to do it, these graduates, they were pelted with paper, tinfoil, rocks, and chewing already chewed tobacco by some of the doctors and some of the male students. So bizarre and immature. (laughs) So juvenile, right? Very weird. And nevertheless, these graduates showed bravery, decorum, and they proved themselves by their skill and by by non-retaliation. They just got in there and they did the job that they were supposed to. So in 1872, um, Anne Preston became gravely ill. And again, she was suffering from articular rheumatism. But she continued to teach at the college, serving as the professor of physiology and as a consulting physician at the women's hospital. But she had to restrict her private practice to office visits because she could no longer ride out to visit her patients um, with her horse and buggy. Nevertheless, her spirit remained strong, and she was a constant inspiration to her students. Year after year, she addressed the graduating class of the female medical college, urging them to continue to practice the highest standards of medical care despite opposition. Then in 1871, Preston suffered an attack of acute articular rheumatism, which left her in a weakened state. She died on April 18, 1872, and was buried near her beloved friends, Lucretia and James Mott, Mm -hmm. and many other Quaker abolitionists at Fair Hill Burial Ground in North Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. Anne left her instruments and her life savings to her beloved college for a scholarship. So, six years later, her friend, Dr. Emmeline Cleveland, died and was buried next to Dr. Preston as... um, Dr. Preston had requested. Now, mm. just really quick, yeah. I want to tell you about Emmeline Horton Cleveland. Oh, yes, yes. So she was born in September 22, 1829, and her parents were Puritans. Oh, and she also was the second child of nine siblings. <laughs> and so she and Anne had that in common. She was born in Cleveland, Ohio, but moved with her parents to a farm in Madison County, New York in 1839, and her education was continued by tutors. Her lifelong ambition and dream was to be a missionary. Aww. Don't you just love her already? However, her plans were stifled when her father died. You know, a lot like, you know, 
Anne had to go take care of her sick mother. Yes, and had that to... happened with women alive. You're not married. You have to take care of the family. That's yeah. right. So she took a teaching position so she could help her mother out financially and help raise her siblings. When her siblings, again, could help with the financial support of the farm, Emily enrolled in Oberlin College and graduated after three years. Um, she At this time, she wrote to Sarah Josepha Hale. And Sarah Josepha Hale, she might come up in another one, <laughs> she was the editor of the women's magazine, Gaudet's Ladies Book, as well as the president of the Pennsylvania Ladies Missionary Society. Oh, cool. So Sarah wrote to her and said, look, I want to be a missionary. I know you're head of the Missionary Society. Do you have any recommendations? And Sarah Josepha Hale said, what we really need is we need doctors who are willing to go to the mission field. So Emmeline attended and enrolled in the Female College of Pennsylvania. Oh, yes. And um, in 1853, she met Anne Preston. So Emmeline, before this, when she was still at Oberlin, she married her childhood sweetheart, Giles Cleveland. Giles also wanted to be a missionary. Mm. And he had gone to Oberlin College of Theology and, you know, wanting to be a Presbyterian minister and, of course, a missionary. However, ill health forced him um, to take a teaching position instead of um, being able to go on the mission field. Now they're married, Mm -hmm. and he's so sick that they're having to put it on hold, and they're hoping he would get better. Um, During this time, too, she had a son named Arthur. So this woman is so busy, but she continues just to, you know, press forward. After graduating college, Emmeline started a medical practice in the Oneida Valley in New York. Mm -hmm. In 1856, she was offered a teaching position um, doing the anatomy courses at the Female Medical College of Philadelphia. (laughs) She accepted, and she and Giles moved. One year after moving to Philadelphia, Giles became paralyzed. So he had been sick still. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. And unable to work. So instead of getting better, he got worse. And now she has a baby, too. Now, I don't know. This is just conjecture. But it seems as if maybe Giles stayed home and took care of their son, Arthur, Mm -hmm. so that she could teach and practice medicine. In 1860, she accompanied Dr. Preston, Anne, who we just talked (laughs) about, to London and France to intern at various hospitals and obstetrics. So from that training, Dr. Cleveland was known as the best woman's surgeon in the United States. She became so adept at delivering babies and even doing C-sections and surgeries (laughs) in the 1800s. Insane. In 1862, she was a resident physician at the Women's Hospital of Philadelphia, and she was teaching courses at the college. In 1872, after the death of her friend and colleague, Anne Preston, she became the dean of the Female College of Philadelphia, now the Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania. Again, only the second woman to serve as the dean of a college, especially a medical college. In 1878, she took the position as gynecologist for the Pennsylvania Hospital for the Insane. So she actually left the Quaker Hospital and she went to this hospital for the insane. that's a calling. Mm -hmm. But it was that year she picked up tuberculosis at that hospital. I guess there was an infection. And again, you can imagine that the hygiene and and the um, habits at a hospital for the insane would not be as Mm. good as as the Quaker hospital. Right, no. Mm -hmm. And so she contracted 
tuberculosis and died that year. And she was buried next to her friend and colleague, Anne Preston. Mm. She was survived by her husband, Giles. He went on to live in Arthur. And what is really interesting is Arthur later became a doctor. Mm -hmm. So you know she was an influence on Arthur. It was said of Anne Preston by her colleagues that she was a woman of real ability, personal beauty, and grace of manner. And others would comment on how how excellent her skill was, how down to earth her demeanor was, and how beautiful she was, not only outwardly, but inwardly. She was well loved. Mm. And I just think it's amazing that Emmeline Horton Cleveland and Anne Preston became such close and good friends mm. and worked together. So that's that's pretty much it for what I've got on doctors. After this, I'm ready to go to the <laughs> mystics. Move on into the next thing. But yes. no, that's a wonderful like way to wrap up here, especially too, because that Philadelphia Medical College came into so many stories. So it's kind of fun to end on yes. the woman who really, yes. you know, took it to. Yes. I remember I just Scudder went there before she yes, went to Ida. New York. Yeah. In fact, quite. And Susan LaFleisch, yes. who we talked about, she also went to uh, the college. It was later changed to um, Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania. Oh, yes. you said Okay, so they changed the name. Yeah, they changed the name. And I think it was maybe during the tenure of... Um, Emmeline? Or? Of Emmeline Horton Cleveland. Yes. Okay. okay. Isn't it interesting because she had lived in Cleveland and then she married a last yeah, name, I Giles thought, Cleveland. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Yes. It gets a little confusing. I was like, am I reading this right? Oh, I love it. But, but. Um, and these two women were so godly and mm-hmm. so dedicated. And what they did, like... Um, going into the medical field. And again, I loved Emmeline because her real mission was to be a missionary. And no doubt that's what led her to the um, the hospital for the insane. Here's yeah. a mission field. Yeah. And again, when this Quaker hospital opened to these women, it was not the wealthy women that came to it. It was the poor. Yeah. And it was the immigrants that mainly um, filled the beds of that hospital. So, so it was a mission field. Totally. That's neat how the Lord met that desire of her heart, probably in a way she didn't expect. But what a fulfilling mm-hmm. thing to do. Nobody cared for the insane. So Nobody. that's what I mean. Like, that's a real calling at that and time. And especially for the women. Yes. You know, for the women out this um sanitarium yeah so i mean it's just like uh amazing so that is dr ann preston and dr emmeline horton cleveland (laughs) both definitely women worth knowing i guess we can say yes definitely and again i just love the discovery of these women i've just gotten actually three new women were suggested to me by emails that i'm really excited i'm already starting my research somebody told me about a book i've already ordered it on amazon and i'm so excited i i know jasmine too we love the reading Mm -hmm. we both love to read and my favorite genre is biographies especially christian women Biographies. Actually, I love all biographies, especially missionary biographies, which yes, Jasmine of and I have in common. As everyone probably knows from all the missionaries we did early yes, on. Yes, <laughs> but we are so excited to be bringing these to you. But at the same time, we also realize that you know somebody personally who has been an inspiration, who is a godly woman. And if you think she should be known, we would love you to write a little bio of her that we could use 
And we've asked you this before, and we're waiting for those short bios to come in <laughs> uh, because we want to feature her. It could be your grandmother. It could be your aunt. It could be your sister. It could be your mom. It could even be your daughter or a cousin or just <laughs> a woman at your church or your neighbor. We want to hear those stories and feature uh, some homey stories, too. Right. Of, of, you know, women who have lived not that far from us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because we, it's our firm belief, Jasmine and, and myself, that you know a woman worth knowing, and we would like to know them too. Yes, definitely. So how can they get in touch with us, Jasmine? Well, Cheryl, <laughs> they can write to our email address, which is uh, wwk at cccm.com. Or you can also find us on uh, links with the women.cccm.com uh, website or Cheryl's website, which is graciouswords.com. There's which a is link the there easiest. Well. <laughs> that might be the, yeah, if that's the easiest one, just go with the one you can remember. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> with but gracious words, it's fine. We want to hear from you, and we love bringing you these women each week. Mm-hmm. So we want to thank you for listening, for joining. Please like us on whatever medium that you listen to us. It would be so appreciated yes. because we want more women to tune in yes. and get to know these women because we know they're women worth knowing. That's right. <laughs> Until next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett.